How did you start your podcast originally? I started on my cell phone with a call recorder, an app that journalists will be familiar with. Mm-hmm. And my audio wasn't great. I recorded it in our cooler for our vegetables, like our walk-in oh, cooler. Yeah. And also we had two young kids and it was the only place I could go to do it. Mm. And uh, it kind of evolved from there. You know, we're going into our fourth season this fall. Each season has gotten a little better. I've gotten a little bit better at interviews and more comfortable. But the beauty of podcasting, like I think that when you're a curious person, it really fills that need for you to just dive into things. If you're someone who refuses to go along to get along, if you question whether the status quo is good enough for you and your family, you want to leave this world better off than you found it, and you consider independence a sacred thing, you may be a prepper, a gardener, a homesteader, a survivalist, a farmer, a rancher, an environmentalist, or a rugged outdoorsman. This show is for those who choose the road less traveled, the road to self-reliance, for those living a daring adventure, life off the grid. Jesse Frost lives in central Kentucky, where he runs Rough Draft Farmstead with his wife, Hannah Crabtree. Frost is also the host of the No-Till Market Garden podcast and the author of the Living Soil Handbook, the No-Till Grower's Guide to Ecological Market Gardening. Jesse Frost, welcome to the Off the Grid Biz podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me, Brian. I'm excited to be here. This is real fun. So tell us a little bit about what it is that you do. <laughs> well, I do a lot of different things, but my primary vocation is farming. As you said, a small scale uh, farm in central Kentucky with my wife, Hannah. We are three quarters of an acre uh, no-till vegetable production. And that is my full-time gig. That's what we do for a living. But I also do a, lo- a number of other things. We run no-till growers with uh, my partner, Jackson Roulette. He co-founded it with me. We think of it as sort of an aggregate of information where we are trying to dig up as much growing information about no-till market gardening that exists and that we can sort of create ourselves and try and seek out. And we've created several different offshoot podcasts from, you know, I I host the no-till market garden podcast, as you said, but we also have collaborative farming podcast that's hosted by Jackson. We also have winter growers podcast that's hosted by Clara Coleman, uh, daughter of Elliot Coleman. Jenny Love does the no-till flowers podcast. And then we do a weekly live show with um, Josh Satin, uh, who some people who may be familiar with his work through YouTube, but he posts a every other week live show on our YouTube channel. So we do a lot of stuff. It's a lot about just getting that information out there. We try and keep it free. Um, and we are kind of a different business model in that way, but we try and make sure that anybody can access our information. And yeah, it's a number of different things that we do, but they're all very exciting and very fun for me. How did you end up at this point? Where did this all start? So it all kind of started with my interest in farming and agriculture, which started probably about uh, 12 or 13 years ago when I was, I was actually working in wine in New York City. I worked in a wine retail and we specialized in really small scale, really like unique wines, very niche stuff. Like the, the, it was kind of at the beginning at that point, it was kind of in the middle of the natural wine craze. Mm. And I really loved those wines. I really loved these really funky kind of really, you know, sometimes effervescent, sometimes really cloudy wines that just tasted so vibrant and so alive to me. And I got obsessed with the people that made them. And I kind of started studying viticulture and uh, I went and 
would visit winemakers in Europe and really enjoyed seeing their love of the land. And for a brief moment, I kind of thought about being a winemaker, but I, I kind of knew just deep down that wasn't really my thing. I knew that I would not really be that all that interested in, uh, you know, making just one product. So I moved that idea to just doing uh, vegetable farming because I love vegetables. I love, you know, cooking. That's kind of also in my background. And so I moved from New York City back to my home state of Kentucky and found an apprenticeship here. That's where that started. So the apprenticeship was a biodynamic farm called Bug Tussle Farm in Southern Kentucky. I learned everything there, like just all the different techniques for kind of minimal tillage and, you know, really responsible tillage with cover crops and those sorts of things. We did rotational grazing, we did herbs, we did livestock, all sorts of different livestock. We did chickens and turkeys and um, everything. So that was a really great immersion into agriculture because I didn't have much of a background. I didn't have any of a background in it. My family is not agricultural, at least not in any recent history. So from that, I met my wife there. She was the other intern in my second year, Hannah. She and I, you know, decided after our first year interning together or her, her first year, my second, that we would start a farm. So we started a farm. And um, one of the things that we knew we wanted kind of from the beginning was to reduce our tillage and sort of figure out different techniques for how to manage, you know, crops without tillage to reduce our cultivation needs and to increase our water holding capacity and uh, have better performance with the crops, like all of the things that no-till purports to do. Um, so we started kind of investigating these ideas and there just was not a lot of information out there about it. That was one thing that we really discovered was that there, there's just this complete lack of information about the technical side of managing a small scale farm, you know, high production, small scale vegetable farm without tillage was like, there was just not much out there. That's where no-till growers kind of came into it is that I had this realization that like, I wasn't going to be able to find the information I needed. I was going to kind of have to dig it up. And if I was going to do that, I was just going to call people and have conversations with people who I knew were doing very interesting things in the no-tillage world try and, uh, you know, record those conversations and share them as a podcast. So that's where that was sort of born out of. And then no-till growers kind of grew from that. Wow. That's fabulous. So what type of vegetables do you grow on your farm? We do mixed production. We focus a lot on uh, a handful of crops, garlic, cherry, tomatoes, lettuce, uh, green onions, beets, um, carrots. Those are kind of our main products, but we do, you know, sweet potatoes. We do a little bit of, we always grow some things that we love for ourselves and for our family. So we'll always grow a little bit of sweet corn. We'll always grow sweet potatoes, um, winter squashes. We do a big mix of stuff, but really what pays the bills is those first crops. Those other crops are both sustenance, but also, you know, crops that we enjoy growing. It gives us some good biodiversity in our soil and in our crop rotations. And it's fun to have a, a diversity of crops. Like if it's, you know, we don't want to just be a lettuce farm because that's really easy. It's, it's easy for us to sell a lot of lettuce. It's easier for us to grow a lot of lettuce, but we want that diversity. It's good for the soil and it's good just for ourselves and for our family. Absolutely. How did you find your first initial customers after you, so you, you got your farm going, you started producing, where'd you find your first customers? So the first model, I think it's important to start out there. The first model yeah. that we used was the CSA you know, for the listeners who most are probably familiar, but the community supported agriculture just being the subscription farm subscriptions. Mm -hmm. And so essentially that's where we started. And we started a lot with family and friends, um, which I think is pretty, you know, for small scale farmers getting off on their own, especially who are doing it near home, they end up 
a lot of times with, yeah, family and friends as their kind of first supporters. Um, and that was great because they're much more forgiving when you make mistakes. And, you know, you're going to, especially in your first years. And CSAs are really complicated. Like it's a very complicated style of growing and marketing. It could be really great, but, you know, you need to, there's a lot of different things to keep in mind for mitigating your risk and the stress because there's nothing. I just, I, I can, I still feel it in my stomach when I think about what it feels like knowing that you're coming up on a week or two or three weeks where you just don't have a lot in a row. Like the garden's not bouncing back. You know, you've had a drought or you've had flooding or whatever it is. Um, and you know that things are not going to be where you need them to be on time. And that is so stressful. So mitigating that like is a really big part of it. But yeah, in terms of our customers, that's where we started. Then we kind of moved on from that to we started sort of hitting the streets and just like passed out flyers and did a lot of, at the time we were doing, you know, we had like a Instagram account. I think we started that pretty early on. And so that was helpful to get the word out. And, you know, this is probably 2012 that mm -hmm. we really started reaching out beyond our, or maybe 2013. And when we started kind of reaching out beyond our, uh, just like friends groups, yeah, we just kind of would go to farmers markets and set up like if we had produce early on in the spring or uh, maybe late in the fall before the next year, we'd go and set up and just like do CSA fairs as well. Like that's a thing um, where you go and try and meet customers. So we would do as much as we could to just get the word out and meet people. And for the most part, we were able to hit our budget to an extent. Yeah. And the difficulty for us really in the beginning years wasn't so much getting the customers. It was getting consistent crop production. Mm. Um but I don't want to, to sort of just stumble by that because it can be really hard for some people, depending on where you live. Uh, rural areas tend to be really hard to get customers to buy, you know, especially for us. Like now we're certified organic. We've always grown organically. But yeah, I think that's, you know, it can be really tough to get customers in rural areas, you know, to spend a little bit extra. Although in some ways it's getting easier. Um, some people are more aware of what they're eating increasingly and wanting to know where their food comes from. But, uh, it, you know, it can be a challenge. Absolutely. Well, that makes sense. So are you basically getting customers from the same places that, that you've already mentioned? Where's the top place that people are finding you now? So I should describe, okay, so basically we went from the CSA model mm -hmm. to a more farmer's market-based model. And so we, excluding last year, last year we were going to stop the CSA, but with COVID, when that came into the picture, that obviously we just restarted our CSA and that was all, all of our customers for previous years. Word of mouth is really effective with that. You know, if, when and if we wanted to grow our CSA, we often just asked our current CSA members if they would spread the word and that was very helpful. Mm -hmm. uh, we stopped doing the kind of hitting the streets and asking everybody. Um, and it got, it can be hard though. It can be hard to fill those CSAs. It, you, once you have your CSA going, you really want to deliver on it. But what happened now, like what's happened since then and why we kind of were at least going into 2020 expecting to drop our CSA and why we were able to drop it this year in 2021 is that we, you know, essentially decided that the farmer's market fills that need for us and we can use it in a diversity of ways. In terms of finding customers, the biggest thing that we did was certify organic. Nothing has gotten us an instant customer base nearly as quickly as certifying organic. Essentially, you know, you go to farmer's markets and I don't know how common this is out in the West, but it's certainly common here where you see growers who you know care and who you know grow good food and don't spray or don't spray very often or whatever it is. Um, but they don't have any 
proof of that. Like there's nothing about, they can, they can write stuff on their signs and whatever, but if they, that symbol, that certified organic symbol for all of its faults is a really effective marketing tool. As soon as you put that certified organic sign up on your table, customers will come to your booth who maybe would have walked by before because they didn't know who you were. It just eliminates that conversation of, do you spray what kind of, you know, cause that's a really awkward thing to put on the customer to ask. And it's often, they just want to know that you're taking care of your food and growing it in the right ways and not treating it with chemicals or not growing it with, you know, chemical fertilizers and all the things that they're trying to avoid in their diets. So I think that putting that certified organic sign behind you really just answers those questions and it takes all the stress off of them. Oh, that's great. That's really good. So you have the farm, you have this business that was growing, and then you started no-till growers. And that's become a secondary community almost that you've had set up. And you said that you attempt to offer as much available for free as possible. So why don't you tell us a little more about that model and, and how you came about that? Yeah, it's a very unique model. It's sort of something that we're still trying to figure out exactly how it works, but it requires a diversity of, of revenue streams a lot of creativity and a lot of sacrifice in the beginning to get it going. But essentially the idea is, is it's somewhat of a nonprofit that that's actually a for-profit that operates somewhat like a nonprofit recently got a grant from Southern Sayre. We also do donations from not only just general donations from the public, but we do a Patreon account. Our Patreon account is kind of the lifeblood of our operation. It's five or 600 people there right now uh, who donate every month. And then $2 increments, $5 increments. We have a few that in that 10, 15, $20 range, but most, the majority of them are that two to two to $10. And that is huge. I mean, that that's an enormous amount of, of income for us. And then other things that we've done, we do fundraisers, like we'll print uh, hats and sell those. We do those, you know, once a year, we'll do a big printing and sell those. And that's a revenue stream for us. I recently published the Living Soil Handbook and we've been selling that. So that's published by a publisher that's through Chelsea Green. But we've been, you know, in the author, anytime you publish a book, you have the option of selling it through your site. And we chose to sell my book through no-till growers as a revenue stream for no-till growers. So I still get a kickback royalty from the publisher, but the majority of the profits, it's almost like a bookstore go to no-till growers. So that's encouraged quite a few people to order it from no-till growers. And instead of maybe Amazon, where you like in a situation like no-till growers, you know, that that money is going towards building more content. And so when I said giving it all away for free, we don't keep anything behind a paywall. I mean, the book is the closest thing to a paywall that we really have. Mm -hmm. um, we don't, you know, we have, have the Patreon account, but we're not putting up special information there. People who are Patreon members know that. They know that they're not necessarily getting special treatment. They're supporting us giving it away for free so that anybody can access it because there's a lot of inaccessibility in terms of, you know, starting a farm is expensive. In the early years, you don't have hundreds of dollars to pour into your education or thousands of dollars, you know, sometimes depending on what the resource is, it can be very expensive. Um, so we try and just make it extremely accessible because we feel like that's the fastest, the most rapid way to get the information out. That's the most rapid way to get it to the most amount of, to disseminate it to the most amount of people and to just grow the movement faster and, and create healthier food and healthier environment and all of the things that matter to us. Oh, that's great. Tell me a little more about the book. Whose idea was it to write the book? How did you go about doing it? Tell me more, a little bit about that process. 
Yeah, books are, uh, you know, it's something I've been a writer for a long time and it's something I've been passionate about. And I've really spent a lot of time as a writer studying the book industry. You kind of have to, you kind of have to understand the publishing industry a little bit to be able to, to get your foot in the door, to get somebody to want to publish you. So I started a long time ago, assuming this was years and years and years ago that I started studying this stuff and looking at agents and all those things. But as I got into agriculture, as you niche down, it gets a little easier in some ways. Mm -hmm. So as I got into agriculture and later on, like when I decided to write the book, um, because I felt like there was a need for it, a niche that I could fill. And I can talk about that in a second. But I basically, you go to the publishers who publish in your genre. And in our case, it would be agriculture. And there's several, there's several really good ones. And you kind of go through and you pick the one that you feel like is most uh, fits your personality or fits your goals the most. And um, then you follow their guidelines. Case of Chelsea Green, I had to submit a uh, query letter. Query letter is a very specific thing. When I talked about studying the industry, you kind of have to study the query letter. It's a very, it's like the most important thing to get your foot in the door. It's the elevator pitch of writing. And so you really have to study that and figure out exactly how to do it well, have it edited, practice, write a bunch of them. Every idea you have, just write it out like a query letter. And once you get their interest, once you pique their interest, they're, if they want to, if they want to publish what you're writing, then they ask for a proposal. And a proposal includes a bunch of information that they request specifically. And then beyond that, they ask for two chapters. So two already written chapters. Um, now, if you're submitting fiction, for instance, it's going to go totally different because they want a manuscript. But in the case of nonfiction, they actually want some control over, over the structure. So submitting two chapters is you could submit a full manuscript if you had one, I suppose, but, um, you know, fully finished all the chapters, everything. But if you but generally you're going to submit a, you know, a partial. So two chapters minimum. Um, if you have three, that's great too. But you want to give two really nice chapters, plus all the other information that they request, the bio and uh, you know, possible sales outlets and all the various things that they are going to request. Cause not only do they have to like the idea, but they have to know it's marketable. So you go through that and that's a big process. And then you start sitting down with the editor. Uh, you get an editor, you get assigned an editor. Um, you start sitting down with that person. And in my case, it was Fern Marshall Bradley. She's amazing. She's kind of a legend in the agricultural world. She was amazing. And she and I kind of designed the outline together we came up with something that I was really excited about and we have hammered that out for, I guess it took about nine months of active writing, but it was with all the work that I was doing through No Till Market Garden podcast and stuff, several years in the making, like just me kind of thinking about how I wanted to do this book. And a lot of farming books are written from the perspective of a single farm. And I wanted something that was more of a choose your own adventure. And I say that I use that term loosely because choose your own adventures are very specific. But the, the idea being that I wanted to say, not this is how things happen on my farm. And this is how you know, you can do it. I wanted to show this is how soil works. And this is how you can appropriately address its needs, no matter where you are. So that was kind of the idea behind the book is that sort of, I wanted it to be not context specific. I didn't, we have a lot of books with, and I love them dearly um, from the North, for instance, from Maine through Canada. And those are great, but those aren't super helpful always to me down here in Kentucky. So I wanted something that would be helpful to anybody anywhere. Uh, so that's what I was kind of striving for. And I think maybe that's that niche that I chose, that direction that I chose helped to get it published, helped get peak the publisher's interest. And it also, I mean, part of that too, if you're interested, I'm assuming I'm, I'm talking about this in a way for somebody who may be interested in writing a book. Um, sure. 
that, you know, you do want to spend a good amount of effort while you're getting your idea together and while you're practicing your query letters and all of those things, you want to spend a good amount of time getting a base from which to work because the publisher needs to know that they can sell the book. They need to know that people know who you are. And it, it is not as big of a deal in agriculture because a lot of the best minds in agriculture don't have big social media followings or anything like that. But those aren't bad. I mean, those will help. Those are little things that may, um, you know, if you have a good social media following, in our case, we, you know, obviously the No-Till Market Garden podcast and our YouTube channel and all the things certainly helped for getting my foot in the door. But you want those things. You want to think about like how, uh, how can you grow your audience? It's also good practice. Use it. You know, if you're a writer, write. You got to write all the time. You know, you have to be able to show them that you can finish a book. That's important too. A lot of people want to write a book, but don't spend a lot of time writing. I've written every day for 17, 18 years. And that's what I do. And I get up every morning and I do it. And I've done it for years and years and years. And that's not a requisite. Like lots of people can just kind of start to slowly pick it up and do a decent job, but you're going to have to show that you can produce a book at the end of the day. Absolutely. After you've gotten the book published, what effects have you seen come off of it for no-till growers, for everything else that you're doing? What are the benefits to having a book like this out there? Yeah, that's a good question. I like these questions, Brian. This is fun. Oh, I haven't got you. to talk <laughs> about the specifics of uh, the book writing. Um, so it's only been out since July 20th. So not that long. The, I think the effects that I've seen so far, so we're, we're recording this August 9th, um, and the effects that I've seen so far, one, it's sold really well, which is great. I mean, it shows that the support for what we're doing is really big. And I think that people have really responded to like I, the business model that I described earlier. And it's genuine. It's not us, you know, we're farmers, so we want that information. We want to share this information for free because we are seeking it out ourselves. It's important to us, it affects our business. I hope that it's going to help people who don't necessarily listen to podcasts or watch YouTube videos, or I think for us having a diversity of mediums of, of media for people to, who may be different kinds of learners or respond to things differently or gravitate more towards one kind of medium than another, this way they have another option that isn't just the podcast because not everybody can listen to podcasts. Um, I know for one, moms have a hard time with podcasts a lot of times because they are taking care of their children and mm -hmm. they're busy. And But maybe at the end of the day, they can sit down even while they're nursing a baby and read a book. And that's, um, and I know that just from my wife's experiences. So maybe that's an option for somebody like that or somebody uh, who, yeah, doesn't watch YouTube videos. There's a lot of accessibility issues too with, uh, you know, hearing impaired and those sorts of things who may not be able to listen to, to podcasts. Um, so I don't know. I mean, it was just another option. I hope that it's able to help people. What the response has been and how it's changed things so far is, is it maybe too, too early to say. Um, but it'll probably, I mean, certainly I will get to present at conferences that I maybe didn't get to before because of a book. And this is just speaking in generalities that anybody that produces a book can put the word author behind their name so they can have a wider reach um, and maybe be able to present to different audiences in different places and travel a little bit more if that's what they're interested in. And that can be great depending on what your field is and what kind of book you're writing and the kind of audiences that you want to reach. But it'll also give you an opportunity maybe to, yeah, to travel and be able to meet people in person who'd be really interested in what you're doing.
Wow, that's really great. That's <laughs> a lot of a lot of good background on both the process of getting things ready for the publisher and what a book could do for you. I really appreciate that. On the same end, I'd like to ask you, how did you start your podcast originally? <laughs> so I started my podcast. I read some blogs about how to how to do a podcast, and they were not. It turns out very informative. I didn't choose the good ones. <laughs> Um, but I started on my cell phone with a call recorder, an app that journalists will be familiar with. Mm -hmm. And it was not great. It dropped a few calls, but I didn't lose any the first year, but it the audio wasn't great. My audio wasn't great. I recorded it in our cooler in our, for our vegetables, like our walk-in oh, cooler because yeah. the sound, and also we have two young kids and it was the only place I could go to do it. Mm. So it started really small and rough and rustic, and uh, it kind of evolved from there. You know, it wasn't each season. We're going into our fourth season this fall, and each season has gotten a little better. I've gotten a little bit better at interviews and more comfortable. But the beauty of podcasting, like I think that when you're a curious person, it really fills that that need for you to just dive into things. Because I, I did journalism for a while and. Um, I really like journalism. I've always liked reading journalism. And one of the things I loved is I did a little bit of science journalism. And one of the things I really enjoyed was calling people who've spent their entire lives work like 40 years, just working on the one question you have to, for like one sentence to be correct. You know what I mean? Like you get in, yeah. you meet people who've just dedicated their lives to like one small portion of what you need answered. And it's really amazing. Like you just, you just meet these incredible people. They're so passionate. They, you know, they don't all love talking to journalists, but it's the ones that, that are nerdy and passionate and love spreading and sharing their information and are good at science communication. Uh, it's so much fun. I just, I, that is what I wanted to bring. That's what I got excited about when I was calling farmers because it was filled that sort of, um, that love I had of, of talking to people who were re just really into what they do. And, and it was fully fulfilled. It really, you know, that in the beginning, it was hard to figure out all the technical details because I'm not particularly savvy when it comes to audio equipment and audio uh, engineering or anything like that. I was definitely very, very lo-fi, but it didn't matter because the content was so good. Like the quality of the content is always going to Trump, not always, but almost always trump the quality of the uh you know sound and so for me that was what i focused on i was like i'm never gonna i'm not there yet i'm not good at the sound part but i'm good at the content quality so i focused on that because it's so niche and because there was such an interest in it which i was a little bit surprised i thought nobody would listen to the podcast but but yeah since there was such an interest in it that it resonated and that was exciting for me and that kept me going and interviewing more people and improving my audio skills and then you know i think it's okay to start in a rough spot and not without the best equipment and not exactly know what you're doing. And kind of, you got to figure you got to start somewhere. I think it's good now, like in retrospect, there's, and now since I've been doing it and since podcasting has become more popular, there's so much more information out there to dig into. So that's good. I mean, that's so super helpful for, um, you know, anybody that's interested, they can watch a lot more videos and, and read a lot more articles than I could at the time. Okay. Let's take a break from that conversation. I wanted to bring up a question for you. During these crazy times, do you feel like your business is indestructible? Most people don't. And if not, the real question is why? And what can you do 
to make it as indestructible as possible. Well, that's the basis of my new book, Nine Ways to Amazon Proof Your Business. Let me talk about what we discuss in the third chapter, the third way for you to Amazon proof your business, which is be different. In the third chapter, I go into really how do you put yourself out there and be seen as unique, where you really don't even have competition. And there's ways of doing this. In fact, I talk about two specific books that you should go out and get. And these aren't difficult books to read. These are fun books, books that will inspire you and give you creative juices necessary to be able to really stand out and be different. You don't have to be wacky. You don't have to be outrageous, but you do have to appear different. And if you can appear different from everyone else out there, not only will you not have the competition of Amazon.com, you won't have any competition. But I also have eight other ways to Amazon proof your business. Basically the idea of making it competition proof to even someone as big as Amazon.com. So if you'd like to get your hands on a free copy of my book, go to AmazonProofBook.com. Sign up and you will get a free copy and get the chance to purchase a physical copy of it for a special price. And now let's get back to our show. How are most people finding no-till growers? Is it via the podcast or YouTube or what? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, uh, we have the biggest following is probably on YouTube at about, I think we're just under 60,000 subscribers as we record mm -hmm. this. Um, Instagram has been helpful. I, you know, honestly, like, so the name of the book is The Living Soil Handbook. We almost went with Living Soil Growers as the name of our website. But the mm. reason that we didn't, the reason that we stuck with the word no-till as controversial and as kind of confusing as it can be is because it's a great keyword. So a lot of yeah. people find us because we chose that word and we knew that we did it intentionally. We knew that it would come with some amount of pushback because not a lot of people don't like that term. It rubs people the wrong way sometimes. Mm. Um, done a lot of work to try and quell the sort of dogma that can be associated with no tillage, the people who think it's all or nothing, or that any sort of disturbance is bad disturbance and any, all of those things we've, or that, you know, you just stop tilling and that's the only way to do it. Like there's no transition period. You just have to put down the plow and move on. And we've tried to, to sort of temper that, you know, idea, that dogma. So I think that's helped in the eyes of people who've been reluctant to embrace no till as in, we've done that intentionally as well to kind of invite them into the fold and invite them to learn into the information that we're gleaning from the world and that they're welcome to. And, and also no-till is often associated with like big farms, like people in grain country think of as no-till is, is a heavy dose of glyphosate to kill, you know, grass or cover crops and then plant it into that. And it's not necessarily more ecological. So, yeah, I mean, we did have a little bit of an upward battle, but that, that wording was really important. That's a really great point you make. And it's one of those that most people don't spend the time to talk about how the titles of their books or podcasts or the things that they have out there, how their brand name is attracting attention. And just the fact that you, you understand the nuances of that. I think that's really important, really good stuff. I, I got another question for you. What do you like best, would you say, about your business and your industry? On the farming side or on the no-till grower side? Pick one. <laughs> well, I can probably do both. I mean, the, the what I like best about the farming as an industry is that it's very open to sharing. 
And people are very, at least for the moment, pretty open to share their techniques and their tricks and what they're doing. And that is, I think, a little bit unique to farming. And I see it in cooking too, but it's very, you know, in like restaurants, professional restaurants and that sort of thing. But there's less of a proprietary feel to it, you know, and people are very open to share what they're doing. And I think that's been really helpful to get young growers who uh, need that information and need and maybe don't have access to the education or didn't grow up in agriculture to have access to that information. So that's one thing that I really like about the farming side. And that same thing exists on, obviously, that's what fuels the media side, the the no-till growers side. Um, but what do I like most about that? And that I think that interest industry is interesting because it's ever evolving. You know, we, we're seeing numbers in YouTube views across the board on everybody's channel going down because TikTok is starting to take a big share. And so there's this sort of feel and need to kind of always be adapting to that. And in one way, I don't, I mean, nobody really loves change that much who's in a business, but in another way, I think it offers up potential for more creativity. And because we don't, we aren't staked in one revenue stream. Like we're not depending on solely our YouTube profits to get by, um, that we can be a little bit more flexible. So that's kind of what I like about the way where we've settled ourselves in that industry. We're also with that, and, and this is maybe not necessarily on topic, but we're also looking at the idea of turning our media company, uh, which is not something I, I guess I'm just now referring it to it as a media company for you, but that's really what it is. It's this media company. We mm -hmm. do a bunch of different, you know, podcasts and all the things. So sure. um, what we're looking at though, is turning it into something that's more of a cooperative model and where maybe more of like an owner cooperative where multiple people have stake in it so that, um, you know, the contributors, for instance, so that when they're contributing, they have more incentive to share it, but also that everybody uh, is invested in it a little bit more and has, everybody can earn a little bit more from it, from that work. So yeah, we're looking at more cooperative models for our media company, which I don't know how many media companies are, there are like that, but I think it could fit well with what we're doing with the sort of for-profit business acting like a nonprofit. That's great. <laughs> That's really interesting. I'm interested to see where you end up going with that. If you can change one thing about both the farm and the media company, what would it be? Maybe we'll stay with the business side. Mm -hmm. uh, I need to be better with numbers and keeping up with our profitability. I think that I do an okay job, but I do it on the back of a napkin. And it's not like I need better systems for that. So that's one thing that I would change personally about my side of things. Mm -hmm. um, at large, something that I think the industry needs is definitely to continue on that path away from dogmatic thinking and to be open to new ideas and to be to trial things on small, uh, small scale. Um, I also think that there needs to be you know, we started, like I said, mentioned earlier, the collaborative farming podcast, I'd like to see an emphasis on people starting farms together, especially while land is so expensive, while it's really hard to access, seeing more people go in on farms together and find more models and more systems for that to work. On the media side, I think that I would like to see people getting creative about reducing paywalls and getting that information out there a little bit better. I don't think I, I see the value of a paywall and I see the need to 
some of the products that are behind paywalls are so good. They're really high quality and obviously cost money, but figuring out ways to make that more accessible. I'd like to see more of that um, personally. Yeah. Oh, that's great. If we were to talk about a year from now, let's say we got back together and we had you back on the podcast and we were to look back over the last 12 months, what would you say would have had to have happened for you to feel happy with your progress, both professionally and personally? Well, everything for me comes down to my family and my relationships. Mm -hmm. This is something I've emphasized quite a bit um, in my own work, but just the value of your relationships with people around you is paramount. I've said this on other podcasts, but I think it bears repeating that, you know, there's several studies, but the biggest study, the Harvard study, did this, you know, long 80-year study, and it's still ongoing, of Harvard sophomores, and they've incorporated all sorts of other people into the fold. Um, and they've been doing this really long study to figure out, you know, what people value at the end of life. And what it always comes down to is relationships. And that, to me, is something that I'm that I always have in the back of my mind is the value of your relationships throughout your life, not just at the end of your life, but throughout your life, determine your health at the end of your life, determine, you know, have, uh, determine how your happiness, your levels of depression, all of these things. So that matters as much when you're in middle age too, as it does. Yeah. Like I said, at the end of your life. So that's, that's what I'm always focusing on thinking about. How do I, how am I managing those things with all the other things that I'm doing? are those things getting managed? Because at the end of the day and at the end of life, that's what really matters. Boy, that's great. That's good stuff. What are the obstacles standing in your way of, of being able to both keep and grow those relationships? Uh, I think work is tough. I mean, I think you get, especially because I'm doing full-time farming and the media company, um, that you, it takes a lot of time and it takes time out of places where you don't necessarily have time. And you're asking, I've asked a lot of my wife over the last few years, getting all this up and running and especially writing the book. And she contributed actually to the book. She's a great artist and she did the illustrations, but it's a lot to ask. And she's, you know, we have two children and it's, it's a lot of the work for with the kids has fallen on her, especially while also while we're building the farm where I'm out doing a lot of the farming stuff. And we just moved to a new property. When I say building the farm, we just moved to a new property last year. So we moved in December. So we still have a lot of infrastructure work to do. And it's put a, a lot of work on her shoulders. So being conscious of that is, you know, extremely important to me. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. This is the Off the Grid Biz Podcast. So we look at the business side of very different type of businesses that are self-reliance based. And so what, from your perspective, would you have any advice for other business owners out there, just blanket advice that we haven't already covered? For this specific business, one thing I often recommend and one thing I regret about my own journey to having a sustainable business was that I didn't spend enough time learning how to farm. And I definitely didn't spend any amount of time learning about the farm business. I was really interested in the farm and in the homestead lifestyle, did not care enough about the business side. But also I didn't spend enough time on enough farms. Like I didn't learn enough uh, techniques from in different styles and different growing methods. And I think if I could do anything 
over again about my journey here, it would be to probably spend another year or two working with another farm, just a totally different farm from the farm that I apprenticed on. Cause we basically went from the apprenticeship to our own farm. And I kind of wish that we'd spent two years just working on somebody else's farm somewhere mm. in the region, right? Staying sort of where we want to grow because farming, um, you know, learning the weeds, learning the diseases, learning the pests, learning the climate are all really important. If you know where you want to end up, it's good to go where you want to, end, you know, learn to grow where you want to end up. And not that I didn't have a great education, but that diversity of education, I think would be really important and really valuable to me now. Oh, wow. That's a very unique perspective. I haven't heard that one before. That's good. What could listeners do who want to find out more about Rough Draft Farmstead or the no-till growers? Yeah. So uh, notillgrowers.com is a great resource. We You can find all of our podcasts and all of those things there. You can obviously listen to those through your podcast apps, but we, you know, we have all the resources there for you to find individual podcasts that you may be interested in. Uh, and then Rough Draft Farmstead, we, you know, we do all the requisite social media and we're on Instagram and uh, we have a website. We don't update the website as much, but we're, we update our Instagram and those sorts of things. Same with no-till growers. You can find that on the, all the requisite social media as well. Try and keep it simple. Those are the easiest places to find us. And then, like I mentioned earlier, the no-till growers YouTube channel, if you just go to YouTube and look up no-till growers, you should find the videos that we put up weekly. And also we put up a, uh, like I said, in twice a month, we do the live show with hosted by Josh Satin. That's every Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time and uh, every other Tuesday, rather. And yeah, so um, those are the best places to find us, I think. Hey, Jesse Frost, thanks so much for being on the Off the Grid Biz podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me, Brian. It's been a blast. We first started going out and finding people to interview for Off the Grid Biz close to three years ago. And in all that time, I'm always amazed by the different types of people we keep running into and the types of interviews and the directions that these interviews go. And this one with Jesse was no different. It was no different from the fact that it was completely different from everything else we've ever done. It was a lot of fun. We got into a lot of different areas and different concepts that you won't hear on any of the previous episodes. So a couple of these things that he brought up, this idea of going against the concept of having a paywall, people needing to subscribe in order to get content. Now, they are having ways to be able to make money, but they're not just holding all the content back. They're trying to put as much of that content forward, which is a really neat way of looking at it. But also he has built in to his farming business subscriptions and other sorts of types of money-making activities that you wouldn't normally see with that style business. So there's so much ingenuity and so many different ways of thinking about the same issue that Jesse and his team are hitting here. It's just really, really neat. His conversation about how the no-till concept and how that term has been used through the years and misunderstood or misused and to the point to where just calling themselves the no-till growers for the podcast and so forth, it paints them a certain way with some people, but on the same end, 
it gets them attention they wouldn't have had otherwise. So it starts that conversation, even though it's not necessarily the most perfect way to be able to start it. And that was a very interesting point of view that he had on that. All in all, I love the conversation that we hit on with how to get a query letter to a publisher. If you're wanting a major publisher like Chelsea Green to be able to publish your books, that was really interesting. We've never had anybody go into that type of depth into the process. So that's one, if you're interested in that area, go back and listen to that. Maybe even check out the transcription on our website at offthegridbiz.com. Can't wait to see how Jesse is doing in the future and where all this takes him. No doubt in the next year or two, his business is going to look completely different than how it looks right now. If you just look at where he's been up until now. So that's going to be really exciting to see. Join us again on the next Off the Grid Biz podcast brought to you by the team at brianjpombo.com, helping successful but overworked entrepreneurs transform their companies into dream assets. That's B-R-I-A-N-J-P-O-M-B-O.com. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the Off the Grid Biz podcast, go to offthegridbiz.com slash contact. Those who appear on the show do not necessarily endorse my beliefs, suggestions, or advice, or any of the services provided by our sponsor. Our theme music is Cold Sun by Dell. Our executive producer and head researcher is Sean E. Douglas. I'm Brian Pombo, and until next time, I wish you peace, freedom, and success. Thank you.